This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, I'm Matt Lambros, photographer and host of the upcoming After the Final Curtain podcast. If you like what you're about to listen to on the Abandoned America podcast, and I'm sure you will, Check out the After the Final Curtain podcast. I've been photographing abandoned theaters for more than a decade, and during that time, I've met many people trying to bring these buildings back to life. Each episode dives into the history of one historic theater and tells the story of the people trying to save them from the wrecking ball. It'll be available on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you get your podcasts very soon. For people that have grown up seeing movies in nondescript multiplexes, it's hard to imagine how ornate and beautiful theaters once were, and even harder to imagine how they could be closed and left to decay. But that's exactly what has happened to hundreds of theaters across the United States, with more beautiful and historic venues vanishing every year. Today, I'm joined by my good friend, theater historian, and author of the After the Final Curtain book series, Matt Lambros. Matt knows more about these amazing buildings than anyone I've ever met, and together we're going to discuss why so many theaters were built, why so many of them closed, and what the outlook for the future is. We'll also tell the story of the Victory Theater in Hollyoak, Massachusetts, find out how it mirrors the overall story of American theaters, and look at why the current plans for reuse are so important to the community around it. I'm your host, Matthew Christopher, and you're listening to Abandoned America. Matt, how's it going? Good, how are you? I am well. It's an interesting day. I'm looking forward to talking to you about this because that's, you know, theaters are your thing. Yeah, uh, our subject today is theaters. And that is kind of my bread and butter. I've been photographing almost exclusively historic abandoned theaters for just about 10 years, 11. Uh, let me wait. First one was 2000, late 2009. So, yes, that would be coming up on 11 years. So we wanted to put this episode together and it's really interesting, the history of the American movie theater. And so to start, we wanted to go over a brief history of uh, what's known as the American movie palace. And that way you can get sort of an understanding as to why there are so many of them out there. Yeah, I'm excited because, you know, A, I always learn a lot from you about these places. I mean, you uh, know much more about them than most people do, but also because I have researched some things in the second half uh, that we'll be talking about. One of the theaters, specifically uh, the Victory Theater in Massachusetts that you and I have worked with is kind of a uh, way of illustrating a 
concrete example of the overall theater decline. And I'm, I'm kind of hoping that I have a couple of things you don't know in there. So I'm not banking on it because you are an encyclopedia of knowledge about this stuff. But if I can give you a new fact or two about uh, that area, I would be pleased. Well, I believe there was an episode of The Simpsons where they had, uh, I could be completely wrong, where Homer was thinking about something and his, uh, he had to let a couple memories go so they could learn new knowledge. And I'm kind of like that when it comes to theaters. I know a lot, but I forgot probably as much as I know. So on to the topic at hand. So the movie palace refers to a large, elaborately decorated theater, and most of them were built between the 1910s and the 1940s. Uh, the late 20s was the peak, and it was sort of, well, it was very slowed by the Great Depression. Hundreds of them opened between every year and between 1925 and 1930. And they got their origins with uh, Nickelodeons, which was nickel, which was the cost of admission, and Odeon, which was the Greek word for theater, or is the Greek word for theater. They showed photo plays and silent movies accompanied by piano, and they were popular from about 1905 to 1915. They usually sat less than 200 people, just wooden chairs. You could set them up in any storefront. That's a lot, a lot of what happened is people would buy early projectors. They'd rent out a storefront, put up some curtains, put up some chairs, and paint a wall white, and that would be an early Nickelodeon. Uh, they were victims of their own success. The audiences demanded more and more longer films, uh, more seats, and then as films got longer, owners raised their prices, and they sort of started to combine with the next topic, which is vaudeville. So why do you think, what was it about Nickelodeons that made them so popular? They were sort of like, you know, attractions. You know, you'd, we'd walk down the main street in town, and there'd be, it was t t the communal experience of everyone going to see a film, just seeing a film, because this was you know, the beginnings of, of movies, you know, there wasn't like, let's all go down to see a film or see a movie. It was just the, uh, the novelty of it at first, I, I believe. Was that, you know, and again, forgive my ignorance, but also uh, I'm kind of saying this for any people that might not be as familiar with them. I've seen those things where they have like the, uh, you kind of crank a handle or something and it cycles through pictures of things. And that was kind of like a tiny movie where they'd be like, oh, look, here's a scandalous view of, a naked lady that they show you on the front, and then, of course, it's not at all a naked person when you watch it. Yeah, that was another uh, early form of motion picture. And there was another thing that sometimes they would be in the, in the front of these Nickelodeons. You'd have a row of those. They were all money-making just to get people in the door. So you'd see them as you walked by, and but also big signs that said Nickelodeon, five cents. But the Nickelodeon is like a different thing than that. They are two different things. Mutoscopes. They were the, the, you know, the boxes with the crank on the side that you could look through and see like a little, it was basically a flip book, like a flip picture book, you know, the ones that you, you buy at like a novelty store and you can flip through it real quick or mm -hmm. it was like that, but uh, motorized by the crank. And those were a lot of times in the fronts of Nickelodeons, they were in arcades and they were popular before Nickelodeons. A Nickelodeon is almost like a large version of those. So basically, like, you would have these little places that were just kind of like um, precursor to like an arcade or something, a little amusement booth that had things like that. I know also, like, I've, I've seen at various places where they have 
like these really old kind of like animatronic or puppet shows where you put like a nickel in and the puppets dance around and everything. So I'm assuming they probably would have been in the same places as the Nickelodeons and the Mutoscopes. Yeah, that's uh, very true. A lot of boardwalks, there were a lot of uh, entertainment destinations that had things like this, but the Nickelodeon started to spread a little faster. Like every small town had them at one point. The first one, it wasn't called the Nickelodeon, was in Pittsburgh. It's long gone, long gone now. I, uh, I think it was Austin's Nickelodeon, which is interesting because the, uh, the Warner Brothers were from the Pittsburgh area. Well, that's pretty cool. I never knew that. So, yeah. <laughs> so the next topic or thing that went into the movie pass was vaudeville. And that was a series of, like, you think of vaudeville would be like a comedy show today almost, but it would be a little more, more like improv. So it was unrelated acts on a common bill. You have musicians, jugglers, dancers, comedians, and it was developed from uh, freak shows, dime museums, and burlesque shows. And it was from the early 19 or 1880s to the 1930s. Basically, vaudeville began to decline as motion pictures, vaudeville and Nickelodeons, began to decline as motion pictures got longer, as sound pictures were introduced in the late 1920s. So vaudeville had large circuits around the country. That's why a lot of theaters have the same names, why there's a lot of archaic, there's a lot of Keiths, there's a lot of Proctors, Orpheum, Paramount theaters the, their names come from the vaudeville circuits and because they were originally opened a lot of these theaters were opened for vaudeville and then motion pictures were kind of a side it was like a little like side entertainment i'm not sure like how does that translate when you say that the names were from the vaudeville circuits do you mean like the people they were named for the touring companies for the owner of the touring companies or it was like a chain essentially it was both it was a chain, but it was also the last name of the owner a lot of times. So B.F. Keith's vaudeville circuit was named after B.F. Keith. Proctor's was named after the owner Frederick Freeman Proctor's, but they were a company of, it was a chain of theaters across the country. Okay. And then when they made the transition into movie palaces or to showing films, a lot of times they were, the, the chains made the transition as well. One fun example that's still part of the American lexicon is Will It Play in Peoria, which refers to vaudeville performances. If they can succeed in Peoria, Illinois, they can succeed anywhere in the country. And uh, I always like that because I photographed an abandoned theater that was a vaudeville theater in Peoria, Illinois. Oh, that's neat. So why were they a tough crowd? Was it like there just weren't a lot of people that came out there or? I've actually never looked into that. I think it's probably related to the size of the city. Okay. You know, if an act can succeed in that size, it'll succeed in a larger city and also maybe smaller. So companies started recognizing a need for larger theaters to fill for vaudeville because it was so popular. And the first movie palace was the Regent Theater in Harlem, and it was designed by Thomas Lamb, who has... If I sat down and looked at all the theaters I've photographed and looked at the architects, I'd put money that Thomas Lamb is probably the architect of the majority of the ones I've shot. And it's not because... It's just because of how many he designed. I mean, he, the uh, Palace of Majestic in Bridgeport, he designed both of those. 
uh, many others that I've shot, but those are ones that I know you're familiar with. Mm -hmm. So the whole reasoning behind movie palaces was to make the audience feel like they were royalty, like they were walking into a palace and they were kings and queens for the day. So they had, you know, larger seating areas. They had air cooling and later air conditioning. They had childcare services. Some of them had nurseries. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. And they usually sat between 2,500 to 6,000 people at a time. They had their own orchestras. They had organs, theater organs, which you're familiar with, theater organs. (laughs) As are many of your fans, I hear. Yes, they are. Uh, (laughs) You know, stage shows. So, and uh, of course, first run films. And the way it worked when these first opened, you'd go in, and you'd sit down, there'd be an orchestral performance, there'd be a couple comedians, you know, some vaudeville performers, the house orchestra would play, some, the organist would play, there'd be a master of ceremonies who would be talking through the whole thing and introducing all the acts, and at some point you'd see a short film, and then the films got longer and longer, and it ended up being swapped so that you'd come in, you'd see a short vaudeville act, the orchestra would play a little bit, and then you'd see a feature-length film. And then eventually the orchestra would, was gone and the vaudeville act was gone and it would just be a film. So they were basically kind of handed their hat uh, yeah. as time went on by the, the films. Why do you think that was? I mean, why would people rather watch something that was, you know, a movie that is not live compared to live performers in front of them? I'm not sure. I think it might relate to it being something new, something different seeing a full story, like an hour and a half story versus shorter segments of uh, comedy. I mean, vaudeville didn't go away right away as motion pictures rise. It definitely declined quite a bit. And then I think that it was a lot of, so they just didn't offer it. For example, the Kings. When the Kings was being designed, it was designed for vaudeville. And then before construction began right before they changed it and they redesigned it for movies but when it opened it was still vaudeville it still showed vaudeville at first and then a motion picture because uh, it opened in 29 right at, right near the end and all the vaudeville performers complained that they couldn't reach the audience because if you think about it it was 1929 no one was miked there weren't microphones on people they were just trying to project and to project to a 3,000 seat theater. You know, the, the performers complained and the patrons in the back said that we can't hear what they're saying. So once they, you know, using a movie sound system, they could hear and see whatever they wanted and on the screen. Probably. Well, I mean, the other thing too, it seems like a lot of the early films, we think of like films now, like blockbusters as being these kind of uh, action and spectacle bonanzas. And I, I feel like, there's this view that maybe older movies aren't quite like that, but I feel like they were kind of always like that, weren't they? I mean, you look at people like uh, Charlie Chaplin or Buster Keaton, and some of the stunts that they're doing in these movies are really wild and uh, legitimately dangerous, too, uh, which is pretty interesting, because, you know, now it's like uh, there's theoretically more in place to prevent people from getting hurt, but when you see the front of a house fall forward over somebody and they're standing in the doorway and the house collapses on the ground or whatever. I mean, that's not a thing that you could really uh, reproduce on a stage set, right? Right, exactly. And don't really see the actual stars doing that now. I mean, I think Tom Cruise is the only one I can think of off the top of my head that does all his 
his own crazy stunts like climbing super tall buildings by himself. But the other thing that happened to a lot of these theaters is the movie stars would show up at the openings or they'd call. So like, so can you imagine going to a theater now and going, oh, I'm going to go see the latest Avengers movie or whatever it is. And you walk in and suddenly Robert Downey Jr. is there and he's like, hey, everyone, how you doing? I'm excited to see my film. Okay, see you later. You know, the funny thing is, I mean, that, that sort of thing has largely gone from the sort of multiplex experience, but that's the whole uh, point of film festivals and things like that, is that, you know, I mean, now you have like a Zoom call or something with the director, but I know that prior to the plague, yeah, you'd have like the director or whatever show up, and I think that's like a huge, huge thing for people to be able to like ask people about it or just say, wow, I met the person who I just saw this cool movie by or who was in the movie. Yeah, and they, they do it a lot. When I when I was uh, living in Brooklyn, I used to go to a lot of movie screeners. You know, there were people on the street corner who would just pass out tickets. Hey, you want to see a free movie? Want to see a free movie? And, you know, I ignored them for a couple months, and then I realized, wait, these are movies that aren't going to be out for six months. Right. And so I remember going to see Tropic Thunder about six months before it came out, and Ben Stiller was there, and he was talking about the movie, and I was just kind of thinking, wow, this is sort of like, a throwback to the early movie days when the stars and directors were actually coming for them. Yeah, that is wild. I mean, I'm sure that would be uh, quite the cool thing. And so it must have been tough for vaudeville performers, you know, because I know, yeah, I mean, I'm sure a few of them transitioned over or whatever, but um, much like uh, even the silent film actors then had that same uh, being outdated by people who were in the talkies. You have this cycling technology and people who had these successful careers and were well-known and making big money, all of a sudden they're obsolete. A lot of them did make a transition into from vaudeville to silent pictures or to uh, motion pictures, depending on when. Like, uh, like Three Stooges, they were vaudeville performers. Oh, I didn't know that. And they, uh, they made the transition over. Didn't you uh, photograph uh, some of the theaters that they started out in? I photographed the Prospect Theater in Brooklyn. It's, uh, the balcony is still there, but the bottom section is a grocery store. And it was, that was the first theater that they went on stage. They were with um, Ted Healy, who was a vaudeville performer. One of his acts was sick, so he called, he asked his friend Mo and his brother Shemp to come up on stage and Shemp, I think heckled him from the audience and Mo came on stage. Mo was just there to visit him and say hi to his friend. And they came up on stage and that was the first uh, time they, they performed. That's wild. Yeah. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to uh, no. hop in there, but I mean, that's kind of a cool little aside there is that you actually were at the theater that they started in. Yeah, it was very cool. I mean, you've been to the Proctors in uh, Newark and they performed there as well. There's a story I read somewhere about Mo Howard used to send uh, one of the workers from the Proctors across the street to get a hamburger and, and some liquor. Huh. So the people made the transition. And, and again, I'm sorry, I don't mean to, you know, kind of derail the narrative. I figure it's just, uh, you know, good to ask questions and flesh things out along the way. But I believe you were talking about that kind of transition then from vaudeville to cinema. Yeah. So they started building these large palaces for vaudeville and motion pictures kind of came in and took over and so they and a lot of the companies recognized early on that maybe vaudeville is not the future we should prepare for motion pictures and like i said with the kings the altering the plans right before it was about to be built so that it would be better suited for motion pictures than vaudeville 
and that led to vaudeville not being played there for very long. So the vaudeville circuits kind of swapped. They kind of like the Keith circuit and the Orpheum circuit combined and became RKO and famous players became Paramount. And then there's Lowe's. So they, you know, they started basically becoming these movie theater factories because they all owned the theater circuits all owned movie studios. So, you know, they were just pushing out uh, content constantly and playing it in their own cinemas. And then the smaller independent cinemas all had contracts with them to show their films. And so a lot of the movie palaces, it was sort of like an architecture, I, I would assume an architect's dream, because it was like, yeah, play around, go have fun, do what you want. And there were, there's a, many architectural types. There's a, just a classic movie, you know, movie palace with luxurious architecture and, you know, murals and proscenium arch and columns. And then there's the uh, atmospheric style, which is a ceiling that resembles a night sky. And so you'd have, for an example of that would be like the uh, Avalon or New Regal in Chicago, where it's uh, John Eberson designed that. And it was inspired by a an incense burner he found in a French quarter of New Orleans. <laughs> yeah, the Hershey Theater is like that too. That's uh, I grew up in Hershey, and I remember going to see shows there, and they had the uh, stars and whatnot across the ceiling. Did the stars work? Oh boy, <laughs> it's been a long time since I went there. I don't think they did, but probably if I'm wrong, I'm sure uh, somebody familiar with the Hershey Theater will correct. A lot of them. So they had the stars, and the ceiling had was uh, had the uh, stars, and they would have little projectors that would project the clouds across the sky. Uh, I've heard tales that some of them had projectors set up, so when the show was over and the curtain came down, they projected a rainbow on the, the theater curtain. Oh, neat. Uh, one theater, the Kenosha Theater uh, in Kenosha, Wisconsin, actually went and took the stars from literally where it's located and had them placed in the ceiling. They went to a local university when they were designing the theater and had them map out the stars uh, uh, above where the theater was so they would have, it would be accurate to what was outside. It sounds really fun, like, and kind of what you were saying about people being king for a day or whatever. You know, you think about people that may, may not have air conditioning in their houses. They're probably not living in places that are, I mean, you think... Uh, your average theater goer, a lot of these people, like say during the depression, they didn't have a lot of money. So going to a place like this is the one real experience that they have where they can go and see this kind of, you know, fantasy world that's been created, which is uh, pretty cool. I mean, I've often said that I think churches and theaters are probably the only two types of buildings where typically form has taken precedence to function, you know, if, like if you go to a school or something, I mean, they have some uh, architectural flourishes on it, the further back you go, but, you know, I mean, you have classrooms, you have hallways, you have auditoriums, uh, whereas a theater, I mean, really the stage is an important thing, obviously, being able to watch a movie is an important thing, but just the sense of being in the building is supposed to inspire in and of itself a certain type of awe. Exactly. And that was, uh, that was definitely the goal. And it was a way for the poor to rub elbows with the rich at the time, like you said, during the Great Depression. And I know, and I've heard a lot of stories about 
uh, theater owner or managers leaving one of the front doors open during the summer so that people would walk by and a blast of cool air would come out and they would be like, oh, it's really hot. I'm going to go into the theater <laughs> as a way to draw people in. Like the so. theater version of, uh, you know, the Andy Annie's or something that has course, the, the Cinnabon smell wafting into the, the mall or whatever. Exactly. Cinnabon is the one I always think of. Yeah. But, but yeah, the, it's one of my, my favorite stories is one of the manager of the Kings, Dorothy Solomon Panzica. She was the manager of the Kings from, I think, 62 to 75. So it was a little later in Movie Palace days. But she had all sorts of tricks. She was known as the Lady Showman of Flatbush Avenue. To get people to see movies, she partnered with a lot of storefront uh, local, local stores. And so there was a movie called, I think it's Bob, Ted, Carol, and Alice. It's basically a, a couple swap movie from the oh. 60s. <laughs> and so she partnered with a local mattress store to put four mannequins in a bed and say, come see uh, the movie at the King's and was, did stuff like that all the time. Always had a door open. She told the takers to rip everything and do the transactions really slowly from the ticket booth so that a line would form because then people will get on the line. Right. If a That's movie funny. was bad, she would put that on the marquee. Like this movie stinks. That's pretty and, hilarious. Yeah, and she did very well. And she worked for Lowe's for so long that someone who was her assistant ended up being a, an executive at Lowe's. And when they were going to, well, I'll get to this in a minute. The Kings was going to be cut up. It was going to be multiplexed. And she saved it by arguing or basically telling her old assistant, please don't do that. And he said, fine, we'll, we'll keep it as it is, as long as you're the manager. That's cool. I mean, yeah, you know, the, the thing too, I guess, uh, so on one hand, you have this kind of being a king for a day thing that plays into the opulence of these theaters. But the other thing too is there are a lot of them, right? So th there's this really sort of stiff competition and you've got to have like the coolest place or the, the gimmicks to get people in to see stuff. Exactly. And they all had things like plate night where you'd go and they'd give you a plate and you needed to complete the full set. Like that you wanted to complete the full set of dinnerware that you'd get from one theater, but it would be different if you went to a different theater. So it was to keep you going to that specific one. Huh? Yeah. I mean, I, I to me, that is really kind of fascinating. The, uh, the different ways that they used to entice people to come in and that was something that I know uh, went on for years and years. I mean, uh, I, re I remember hearing about the variety, which we both photographed. They would have like the, the creature features and stuff like that, where they'd have like a mummy or something go through the audience or, you know, um, certainly there was the, the smell-o-vision stuff and the, um, what was uh, the one, was it Cinescope, the one that was the... William Castle, you mean? His, uh, his stuff with... Uh... Like where they put a buzzer on the bottom of random seats, and when you're playing his movie, like the it would uh it would tingle, and then they had like some sort of I think it was for Thirteen Ghosts. It was a 3D movie, and they had a a skeleton on on strings that would come down and fly <laughs> through. That's awesome. Yeah, no, that wasn't. I was thinking of um the thing where they had like that kind of super wide curved screen. Oh, Cinemascope. Yeah, okay, yeah. I was close. That was later. That was in the, I believe, in the 50s. Yeah, that was really, really cool. I think the, 
was it? Uh, Quentin Tarantino filmed parts of uh, Hateful Eight on Cinemascope lenses. Yes. And they hadn't, I think I read, they hadn't been used since the 1970s. And they had to take them out and clean them and make sure they were all still in working order. Yeah, that's really neat. Yeah, I, cool. I, anyway, yeah. So that's, I mean, just the whole history of, uh, of, of gimmickry in theaters is fun because, you know, there's something that's kind of tacky about it on one hand. But on the other hand, it's really creative. And, and you're constantly, I think, as a theater, you have this uh, beautiful building, which first, as the buildings are constructed, you're trying to one-up each other. And then when that's old hat, uh, then you have to think up all these other kind of things that go with the movies, like the mattress that you're talking about. I, I find that fascinating. Well, what I enjoy is looking at this and knowing the history and seeing that, uh, seeing this, the independent, and even, even to some extent now, the larger theater chains, sort of going back to that and realizing that, you know, people have these large screens at home. What can we do to get people to come to a theater again and see movies? And, you know, especially, it'll be especially interesting once this, hopefully when this pandemic is over and see what they do to get people to come back. So my favorite example is uh, Nighthawk Cinemas in Brooklyn. They do tons of events. They have food that is tailored to the movie that they show. They do a breakfast thing called Spoons, Boons, and Booze, and Tunes, where they play 80s cartoons and give cereal and uh, cocktails. Just interesting things to get butts and seats is what, right. I, what I always call it. Like, how, how are you going to get butts and seats? And well, again, I mean, that's been my wife's, uh, my wife's job exactly. to some extent with running a film festival is uh, what can you do that's fun that'll get people feeling like they're actually having an experience when they go there. Because again, I mean, why not just watch it at home? I mean, now the thing that I think they're really going to have to sell is uh, you're not going to die of disease if you go to the theaters, you know, but previous to that, there's just this uh, long sort of history of coming up with things to make people interested in going that I think is really fascinating. So a lot of the architects took the, the license to design the theaters and just made them more and more like like what we were we were talking about more and more elaborate to try to one up the one down the street and make it more lavish more grand and it kind of peaked with the uh, Roxy Theater in Manhattan which was known as the Cathedral of the Motion Picture and it had five thousand nine hundred and twenty seats and it did not last very long it closed in nineteen sixty oh that's awful. Yeah, I think you were, now you were in um, that documentary. The documentary I'm in is called Going Attractions. Going the, Attractions. Yeah. They had pictures of that in there, and it was really like, not. Oh, yeah, it's huge. Uh, it's funny, too, because uh, I believe no one has been able to locate color photos of that theater. Like, hmm. it, it was demolished in 1960. The only color photos they have are from the magazine where it was demolished. Oh, my God. Yeah. And that was, you would say, kind of the peak of ornate theaters? Uh, in my opinion, that was the top of the line. The the like when things were going on an uphill, upward transition to how as grand as they can possibly be, that was the one that just knocked them out of the park. It was like, okay, here's how how big they can be. Huge lobby space. I think it had two organs. It was a crazy space, but it was too big, 
And as we'll get into in a little bit, uh, it was a victim of its own success. Like, it, you know, theaters, all, these theaters in general were. The companies thought, we can just keep making them, make as many as possible, to show films. It doesn't matter if there's five on this street, we'll put three more. Right. You know, and that wasn't, that was a little short-sighted. But what I was getting at was, you know, the first commercial flight wasn't until 39, international across the Atlantic. So what the architects did, because some of them did travel or were from other countries, they designed them based on the architecture of other countries that people wouldn't necessarily see, especially the atmospheric theaters. You know, they were designed to simulate sitting in a courtyard in uh, like Spain or in a small town. And it was sort of a way for people to travel the world without actually traveling. So that's like, uh, like for example, the Palace Theater in Gary had that, you know, you can still faintly make out in the ruins the uh, the Spanish villa. I think it's an Italian villa in that one. Is sure. it an Italian mm-hmm. one? And, and I know um, there's a bunch of them like the Lansdowne Theater that are this kind of fantasy Moorish style. Yep, that's why. And it, like I said before, to me, it's sort of like an architect's dream to just be able to play around with this stuff and design and pull designs like that. So like I, I said earlier, they were sort of a victim of their own success, and they really started uh, to go down after uh, World War II. So what happened after World War II was uh, television became a lot more uh, widespread. The first television broadcast was in 28, but it wasn't widely adopted until world, after World War II. The first television that cost under $200 was introduced, in uh, that was in 1947. And then people began to move to suburbs. Uh, most of these movie palaces were in urban areas. Oh, yeah. I didn't really think about that. But uh, the white flight thing played into it, huh? Mm-hmm. And that began after World War II because the veterans were able to get low-cost loans through the GI Bill. And 1950 was the first year that more people lived in uh, suburbs rather than cities. You think, uh, you know, the perception was negatively affected by Batman's parents getting murdered? Out, yes. outside of- yeah, well, well, that was in Crime Alley, uh, so it wasn't technically outside the theater. It was around the corner from it, so hopefully the theater was insulated from it. I know that the sequel to Mark of Zorro, which was the film that they saw, did very poorly because of that, though. Yeah, you know, you, you kind of have to figure, though, if you're going in a place called Crime Alley, like, what do you think is going to happen? Nothing well, good happens in a place called Crime Alley. Okay, so it was called Park Row. And then after they died, it was called Crime Alley. Yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, showing my, uh, my comic nerdism. So, yeah, so people are moving out of the cities for a variety of reasons, the suburbs. And so there's also, I think, an increasing perception, right, of cities as being uh, undesirable, more dangerous, things like that. So at that point, right, you kind of have this slump of the downtowns which we're really going to see for decades after that which led to just an astronomical amount of these really fantastic urban buildings being destroyed yeah and really the the downfall of these theaters like it was uh the biggest thing in my opinion that affected them was the antitrust act the united states versus paramount pictures the supreme court decided that the movie studios, which I had mentioned, owned a lot of the theaters or had uh, contracts with the independent ones, uh, weren't allowed, they weren't allowed to own the theaters anymore. Like you could either own a theater or you could own a movie studio, but you couldn't do both. So the, the studios created the films. They, they had the writers, producers, directors, actors, all on staff. 
They had the film processing in the labs. They created the prints. They distributed everything. And they suddenly weren't allowed to do that. So if one of these large theaters was showing a, like a bad film, one that didn't do well or no one wanted to see, they could be locked into it for about two weeks, maybe more. Wow. And if you're locked into showing a bad film, no one's coming, you're going to lose a lot of money. So owners, theater owners started looking at different options of what they could do. And they saw that there were a lot of the newer theaters being built were twins and triplexes. And they said, well, we have this big 3,000 seat space. What if we put a wall up here in the balcony and divided it from the, the lower level and we had two theaters? So one of the things I'm wondering when you talk about this is, I mean, you know, when you talk about the theater owners and the studios, these are you know, financial behemoths uh, at this point. And as everybody kind of knows, money it makes the laws. So why do you know why it was that this antitrust law came to pass when I'm sure there were tons of people lobbying against it? I mean, is this something to do with like an anti-communism thing or how did that play into it? There, I know that there were a couple settlements or settlement offers that almost were made in this case where the movie studios and the, and the government almost came to an agreement, but it kept pushing forward. They were, they were doing a lot of, um, I think it started with, uh, there was something that they did called block booking mm -hmm. at the theaters, which was basically like, if you want to show this film starring, let's just say, I don't know. Mary Pickford. Yeah. Well, actually, yes. I think that was one of them. You want to show this film starring Mary Pickford, you have to also agree to play this film, not starring her. That's terrible. Right. And that was uh, kind of what led to the creation of United Artists, I think. Yeah. Uh, well, no, that was different. United Artists was created because Mary Pickford, Charlie Chaplin, Bank, Blank, and the other two thought they were being... Douglas Fairbanks. Douglas, Douglas Fairbanks thought they were being underpaid and overworked, and they didn't like the treatment of them by the other studios, so they formed their own so that they could do it themselves better. Block booking did play a part in that, and I know that that was something with uh, Mary Pickford. But anyway, yeah, no, I, I I agree. I think that you are one hundred percent right. I'm. I remember something of that of her being upset that one of her films wasn't being shown because it was being tied with a bad film. But you know, I, I apologize for the tangent there. But back to what you were saying, you know, there's this big uh, antitrust ruling and. Like I said, it just strikes me as strange. Like, what was the impetus to do that? Why, like, who paid who or who, who got the, you know, vendetta that they decided, oh, we're going to take this system and break it apart that's been there? I don't know. That's, that's a very interesting thing to, uh, to look into. I know it was the uh, FTC that started the investigation. It actually started in 21. Oh. It was just delayed quite a few times by World War II was part of it. And the decision didn't happen until 48. And then the movie studios weren't, uh, didn't have to sell off their theaters until 52. Okay. So it was really a long process. And I can't imagine anyone stayed through it throughout the entire time. But the end result was movie studios were for forced to sell their theaters or split into two separate companies. And the outcome started a slump in the movie industry for about 24 years. And it began to recover with the, what's considered the first modern blockbuster, which is The Godfather in 1972. Oh, just watched that again recently. I, and this is, I, I'm going to lose all movie cred, have never seen any of the Godfather movies. I, I, I know, I know, I want to. I've been meaning to. I just have never seen them. 
Well, my, my wife hadn't either, so that's why we watched the first two. I mean, I think the general consensus is you can skip uh, the third one and not miss out on too much. But yeah, the first two are absolutely fantastic movies, and it's uh, really fun to watch. I mean, I, I think you would enjoy them just because of their uh, recreation of New York in you know, the 40s, I think was the the time period of but anyway um, oh yeah well, that um, was the first modern blockbuster yep that and um and i think chinatown was one of was up there as well anyway so theater owners began to look into how can we show more films in our spaces how can we compete with these new multiplex theaters that were opening and so they were dividing them up you know, the one of the major things about this, and we, we talked about it for a second with cooling and having the place, the theater be cold, uh, a place from away from home where people didn't have air conditioning. They're huge. It is hard and expensive to cool a 3,000 seat theater. It's hard to heat a 3,000 seat theater. And if you are not filling the seats, you are losing money on, uh, you know, gas and electric and everything from all of that so uh that's why you know a lot of the, these large theaters later the balconies were closed for extended periods of time before they were even before they were multiplexed and so they divide them up you'd have two one or two screens in the up uh the balcony you'd have two screens down in the orchestra uh i've been to a theater that they did three screens in the balcony they divide the orchestra into two and then they put another screen backstage now, when you divide a th one of these theaters up, it never the theaters never look right. The screen is always kind of at an angle. You can always kind of tell that this is kind of like hodgepodge together. It's not, you can hear, always hear the other movies. They're, they're never as good as a multiplex that's built to be a multiplex. Well, and the, the balcony ones, I mean, I know I've, I've been probably with you in a couple where it's like, um, what's that one, uh, was it the Rialto maybe in LA that we went to? where, no, it wasn't the Rialto. You'll, you'll remember it and I won't, but it was like they just built a floor from the edge of the balcony right up to the wall where the stage was. Um, and it looks like, yeah, you just chopped the stage in half. It's, uh, it's hideous. Well, that's so, the, the Highland Theater. One. And that, that, that one's very interesting because they didn't use the balcony at all. And they have seats up there. They could easily put another screen up in the balcony, uh, but they, they haven't. That one is an interesting look, but yeah, that's what that's what they did. They just cut them up like that, and some of them have you know, like the Highland, have kept going for years now. They're still open, showing these movies. A lot of them basically did it non-destructively. There was one, the Lowe's Victoria in Harlem. It's right next to the Apollo, or it was. The the owner didn't want to do that. It, you know, this theater was designed by Thomas Lamb. It had. It was very similar looking to the Lowe's Palace in Bridgeport. There were murals, and he didn't want to destroy any of those. So he had his architect come in and design a box that they built inside the theater itself so that the original theater was still safe and the, the new screens were inside the box. That's pretty cool. Yeah, but then the theater was uh, it closed and sat for 10 years and then was demolished anyway. Yeah, I mean, it's nice at least that they do that. And that that always is a thing that kind of is fascinating to me in general in buildings when you have, and you see it a lot in theaters actually, where you have these hidden areas that are like walled off or, you know, uh, whatever. And it just has this kind of like, um, there's more to the world than 
uh, you initially think. It's like there's you're going about your everyday reality and there's something magical beyond it. In fact, uh, the one that, that uh, always made me think of that was the Girard Theater in Philadelphia where you, know, you have this little shabby supermarket that's built in the bottom floor of it crappy drop tile ceiling looks like just any other neighborhood supermarket, but there's literally a box in the middle of it. And up around this box, you have this gorgeous theater that just sat there for decades until it was torn down too. And, and um, yeah, like I said, I just think that's a really cool thing to think about all these people going about uh, their day, going and getting some, you know, lunch meat or whatever. And, all around them in the building is this theater that as people die off, they don't even know that it's there really. Yeah. And you know, I get, there's a lot of them that the theaters are still there, but like the marquee has been taken off because it was unsafe or the, the facade of the building has been covered up. Yeah. And I get emails from people when I've posted about certain theaters in certain areas, basically saying to the effect of like, I didn't realize that was there. I had no idea. Like, it doesn't look like a theater. That's the one that I can think of the most right now off the top of my head is the uh, Warren Theater in Warren, Ohio. Oh, the Robbins Theater in Warren, Ohio. It's uh, It's been renovated and it's reopened now. Well, it's probably closed right now. But it, it was reopened before, uh, you know, pandemic. And if you looked at that from the street, no clue it's a theater at all. There's nothing. The, the facade of that building is not interesting to say the least, I wouldn't have thought it was a theater. And inside, it's just a gorgeous space. Right. The Girard was like that, too. They, um, they kind of stripped off the facade. There's actually one that's not too far from where I live called the Empress on Main Street in Maniung, which is just outside of Philadelphia, where, like you said, you would walk by it on the street. You wouldn't have any uh, thought of it. It's actually funny because what uh, tipped me off was the shape of the building. You know, it has that kind of like raised back of the house and the big boxy look or whatever. And so uh, I got really interested in that. I contacted the people and they turned me down. So then I just walked by and asked one of the people that was working there if I could peek in. And he said, yeah, sure, you weird guy. And I went back there and it's like a warehouse for just junk base. I shouldn't say that. I'm sure it's very valuable goods. I don't mean to disparage their wares, but point is that it's a warehouse for all this completely non-related stuff. And the only thing that you really would see that, that indicates this as a theater is they still have the Prasini March. So uh, that was kind of cool. Um, Did you shoot it? No, I didn't because I can't get official permission to do it. Uh, you know, it's like the people that actually own it have no interest in doing it. So I just did the Curious Neighborhood guy thing with talking to the people there and they let me come in and look at it honestly i mean um for somebody like you i think it would be interesting but overall considering that that is like literally the only thing left that i recall that had any uh real artistic merit to it i think for somebody who wasn't into theaters it probably wouldn't be that exciting maybe yeah. i you know i i'll make a mental note of that and if i'm in the area again i'll maybe i'll uh swing by yeah I, hey i live right by it so well, that, that brings up an interesting, actually, the next point uh, that I was going to make is, so what happens to these spaces? You know, you have some of them turned into multiplexes, and the ones that didn't and stayed large single-screen spaces, you know, you'd see uh, they'd be sold. Some of them became churches. Uh, some of them transitioned to performing arts centers. Some became porn theaters. 
a lot became porn theaters. And <laughs> I, I always think that's funny about the Bridgeport Theater because that's like such a gorgeous, gorgeous theater. I mean, that may be, for me at least, the most beautiful theater that's abandoned that I've been in. And just the thought of a space that is that magnificent having kind of such a tawdry use as uh, porn films is kind of like fries my brain. It's such an opposite thing. Yeah, uh, and you know, it didn't, a lot of times, especially in the smaller cities, when a theater became a porn theater, wasn't, uh, you can imagine it wasn't uh, met with open arms. People weren't excited about it. I had, lots of them were raided by the police. The managers of the theater were arrested for, uh, you know, uh, showing porn films. Yeah. And decency. Yeah. You know, there's a theater in uh, Fitchburg, Massachusetts, uh, appropriately named the Fitchburg Theater, that became a porn theater, and the police raided it. And they continued on and kept raiding it because they kept showing porn. And when it was finally forced to close, uh, a group bought it and renamed it the Family Theater. <laughs> no porn here, guys. The No Porn Here Guys Theater. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and you know, so some, you know, the buildings were sold and became things like you know, grocery stores and warehouses, and some were just left completely abandoned. Some were demolished and are now parking lots or changed into completely different uses. You have that one theater in Michigan that actually became a parking lot. I do, the Michigan theater. I have a couple theaters that became parking lots, actually. Well, the, the Michigan theater is an interesting story because it was in the 70s. It had become a performing arts center. It was one of the ones that, that transitioned from a movie theater to uh, showing live acts. And it that ended up closing. And people who worked in the Michigan building, which is attached to it, they were parking in parking lots around it, around Detroit and on the street streets and their cars were getting broken into and they were complaining to the owners of the building if we don't have a private parking lot that we're going the tenants we're going to leave and go to a different building and so they didn't want to do that so their plan was to knock the theater down and build a parking lot there but when they had someone come and investigate if that was possible they found that the structural integrity of the michigan building was tied to the theater itself uh -huh. So they said, well, we'll just knock most of the theater down and build a parking lot inside it. Which is weird because, you know, you see pictures of it. It's kind of a well-known building in that sense where, yeah, it's like a parking garage, but with a really ornate theater ceiling. And if you go, you know, and you can hop a barrier, or I think you can ask now and they'll let you in. But you can climb up and go up into the upper levels of the balcony and like the projection booth is still there. There's still some of the hallways back there and they just look, they just look, you know, like someone left 30, 40 years ago and you know, you don't notice the uh, parking lot from there. Uh, yeah, that sort of stuff. I mean, it's heartbreaking, but also to me, it's just super cool to have uh, the vestiges of the places that are there before it. I, I find that really compelling you know just this idea of like uh that you know that's still being there so uh, it's a shame but it's good at least that there's a little bit of it left i know when i went to la uh, uh not the trip that i went there with you but i was going in some of the theaters around there where it was like it's a uh, jewelry market you know and you go in and it's all these uh jewelry stalls and it's like a sort of jewelry mall and then you look up and there's like the the 
darkened balcony up behind it that has been unused for you know decades presumably and and that to me i just yeah those spaces i always want to see them the other one too that you and i did oh. go to in our trip was the westlake where it was a swap meet and they had that balcony up there with the horrific santas with the, their faces oh, yes. broken off you were uh the first one you're talking about was the warner brothers theater in downtown la is it uh, yes I it was the owl it started with an a i thought was that no the jewelry one that's in downtown la yeah, it's the Warner Brothers. It was the Warner Brothers Theater. Was, okay. That was a, a really cool one. I went there my last trip to LA uh, after the one I went with you and just walked in and uh, had my, I, should, I wish I had a GoPro at the time because I would have just turned that on. But I know that they are very, they don't like people to photograph their theater. And a friend of mine, uh, who you actually met, Mike, we went to the uh, Rialto with him. Mm -hmm. uh, he snuck up on to the, I think it was him, snuck up onto the balcony and took a couple pictures. And I'm, I'm sure that made them very mad. I don't know if they knew about it until he left. So, so yeah, I mean, we basically now, you know, when you're talking about the reuse of these places, there's the, you know, being abandoned or demolished. There's stores, there's warehousing stuff that we've seen, like the one theater that also, I think it was the arcade in LA where they were, ironically storing um flat screen tvs and stuff like that on the stage which is kind of the equivalent of like the randall park mall being demolished for an amazon fulfillment center right. and so churches right uh, churches are another one that use that like i believe there's a spanish language church that's taken over the one in la that's the state uh and they are no longer in charge of it i got oh. to photograph it the last time i was there it is a fantastic theater and it's it's owned by the same people who own the the Los Angeles Theater and the the Tower Theater and the Orpheum Theater in downtown LA. And they basically the Los Angeles and the well the Tower is going to become an Apple Store, but the the Orpheum is a performing arts center. The Los Angeles is pretty much only used for like special events and filming. And I I don't know if the state will uh, also become part of that. I, I assume it will. Okay, so let's wrap up there for now, and we'll return in episode two to talk about a theater we both know very well, the Victory Theater in Holyoke, Massachusetts, which has been abandoned for decades and may hold the hope for turning the riches to rags story of Holyoke back around. I'd like to thank everyone joining us for this episode, and if you'd like to support our work, you can find Matt Lambros on Patreon at After the Final Curtain, and I highly recommend checking out his new After the Final Curtain podcast. He has two books in his After the Final Curtain series, and King's Theater, The Rise, Fall, and Rebirth of Brooklyn's Wonder Theater, all of which you can order from any bookseller. I'm Matthew Christopher. I'm on Patreon and social media under Abandoned America, and there are two books in my Abandoned America series you can order from booksellers as well. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next episode. Hi, this is Matthew Christopher, creator of the Abandoned America book series, website, and the podcast you're listening to. Thanks for listening, and I hope you're enjoying it so far. If you are, 
and you'd like to support the podcast and help keep it going, there are three things you can do that'll really help out. The first is simple. Just tell your friends and family about it or leave a positive review on your podcast platform if they support it. Good word of mouth makes a huge difference. Second, if you'd like to hear early episodes and see exclusive essays and photos that aren't on my website yet, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash abandonedamerica. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash abandonedamerica. Third, if you'd like to advertise on the podcast, just drop me a note at admin at abandonedamerica.org. That's A-D-M-I-N at abandonedamerica.org. Every little bit counts, and I've got some really exciting episodes that I think you'll love coming up. Don't forget, you can also visit my website, abandonedamerica.us, for tons of photo galleries and background info on hundreds of abandoned sites, or order my two Abandoned America books from your favorite retailer. <laughs>